And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story, real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts, presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. It is, of course, uh, 6.06 on this Thursday as we get ready to uh, wrap up the week. Second best day of the week, of course, always Thursdays. A uh, couple of things uh, kind of going on. Jerome Powell been up on, has been up on the Hill for the last couple of days talking about, well, his whole view on monetary policy, kind of what to expect. And again, as, as we expected, and we'll talk some more about that this morning with um, Michael Leibowitz when he joins us here in the next segment, is that really there's no, not a whole lot of change to Jerome Powell's stance. Now, underneath the surface with all of, a lot of the other Fed members, there's certainly some dissension within the ranks about whether to start hiking rates or tapering, these type of things. But yesterday, of course, Jerome Powell kind of calming the markets a bit, saying, hey, no rush here to start tapering monetary policy because inflation is transitory. And again, there is some credence to that, right? Um, if you take a look at the recent CPI report, nearly 30% of the rise in CPI came, from, CPI came solely from used car prices. So again, there's there's a lot of transient factors, of course, as the supply chains become undisrupted and we start to get things back to work. And of course, there's only so many people that are gonna buy cars. And so when demand begins to, to fall and supply begins to rise, prices are gonna come down. So uh, what has been pushing, in, in a lot of cases, has been pushing inflation higher are things that will resolve themselves over the next few months. And this is really kind of the whole premise of, you know, Jerome Powell's stance is that these are transitory pressures that will fade. So they're trying not to be too quick on the trigger of starting to hike rates and, and reduce monetary policy and then get caught on the back end with having falling inflation as we get there. Now, the question is, of course, is will that happen? Because when we do look at some other factors in the CPI index, like rent, which makes up homeowners equivalent rent, makes up almost 25% of the CPI calculation. Now, Rent had been falling earlier this year because everybody was buying house prices, right? So everybody's going to buy homes. Rent, rental was actually coming down. We may see a transition of that. We're already starting to see some very early movements of that is that rents are now starting to come back up. This is gonna become more problematic also when the rent moratoriums go away and landlords start readjusting for past losses, et cetera, rents are gonna rise. So that may lead to a more permanent inflation pressure in the CPI index over the course of the next couple of years. So again, there are some risks here that we do get higher rates of inflation. Now, the surge we have in inflation right now will go away, but inflation could start to run hotter than previously expected. And again, that's something that the Fed will have to deal with as we get to that point. But again, not quite there yet. But again, this is kind of what Jerome Powell's been talking about for the last couple of days. Hey, bottom line is trying to keep trying to keep the markets inflated at this point, because again, as we've talked about previously, this is all about the stability of instability, right? The Fed needs to keep the markets very stable here, because if you have a big correction in the markets that reduces consumer confidence and all the other things, <laughs> kind of the, the balancing act of everything else begins to come unraveled. So keeping the market stable, very important for the Fed here, 
while they try to adjust their monetary policy. Question is, or, or really the problem has been, is that in the past, that when they start trying to remove monetary accommodation, markets haven't responded well because that's really been the underlying support for markets and really the psychology of the market. So um, as we talked about yesterday, we went through kind of all the sectors yesterday in our three minutes on markets and money, kind of looking at really the diversion between, you know, some sectors of the markets and others. And interestingly, you know, this whole idea of this market rally over the course of the last several months has been this whole idea of this economic resurgence, right? So we had a lot of move going into the growth trade of, 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 this, of the market. Uh, had a lot of, uh, of that movement back into energy stocks, a lot of this reflationary kind of growth trade. Here over the last really several weeks, it has been a rotation back into the deflationary sectors of the economy, right? Technology has really been holding up here very well lately. And we talked about that yesterday saying that, look, the, the, the NASDAQ has had a very accelerated run here and has had a very long what we call buying stampede in the markets. This is a very extended case here for the for the nasdaq at this point but again uh if you take a look at where fund managers are positioning themselves right now they have all gone back into the long growth trade right the long technology stock trade is now where money managers are hiding and that's more of an issue of liquidity risk for these big fund managers that need to be able to move money fairly quickly without having an impact to the price of the underlying shares that they own this is more of a risk control situation here. They're moving money into areas where they have more control over their risk management versus these smaller smaller cap companies. If we take, for instance, you know, talking about small cap stocks in particular, smaller cap stocks have been under a lot of pressure here lately. Money flows coming out of those areas because those are the most difficult stocks to move money in and out of without grossly affecting the price. So again, what we're seeing here is a little bit of risk positioning by the larger mutual fund, pension fund managers, hedge funds, getting a little bit more defensive, but remaining invested into the equity market. So that's really what's going on here. And that suggests that, again, we kind of keep going back to talking about this idea that over the next couple of months, we could very well see a pickup of, of volatility in the markets. Because again, as, as, as we've talked about, volatility has continued to get very suppressed here. And again, when you get very suppressed levels of volatility, it's kind of like stretching a rubber band, you know, in one direction. When you get this very suppressed volatility, you eventually get a snapback in that rubber band. Now, when that occurs, you don't know. You don't know what's going to trigger it. Could be a comment from the Fed. It could be a comment on, on the economy. Could be a variety of things. But you're getting kind of all the ingredients kind of lined up here for at least some type of intermittent, intermittent short-term correction in the markets. Again, not the end of the world. But again, if you're very long equities here, this is kind of the idea where you may want to start just thinking about rebalancing some of your risk, just taking a little bit of taking a few of your chips off the table, right? Just put a few on the sideline. Um, if you don't sell high, you can't buy low when you do get the correction. So again, this is kind of one of the problems with buy and hold. It's great to ride markets up and down, but it's hard to make money that way. So uh, again, that's kind of really where we are at the moment. And again, nothing really huge here. But again, I want to get into a little bit more conversation with Mike Leibowitz this morning. We're going to talk about wealth inequality. And, and, and really this, the, and the idea of climate change and how the Federal Reserve is now getting itself involved into these two issues and what they can really do or not do about it. I mean, but it's not just the Fed, it's also the Treasury, it's also everybody else. Why is it? What is the push here uh, for, for the Federal Reserve to start getting involved in things that really have nothing to do with monetary policy? 
And is there a reasoning behind that that really has more to do with trying to keep the economy stable and afloat um, at this point in the game as well? So we'll get to that with Michael Leibovich right after the break. Be sure you get by our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. You can always get our live stream there. As also, pick up our latest newsletter. We'll have a new one out this weekend, so I'm going to start writing that one tomorrow. Um, latest blog posts, more. It's all there for you. Our candy, coffees, lunch and learns. Just a tremendous amount of information at our website realinvestmentadvice.com. So when we come back from break, we'll pick up with Michael Leibowitz and uh, we'll get to work on talking about the Fed, wealth inequality and climate change. And what does that all have to do with you, your money and the markets? We'll be right back. Listening to The Real Investment Show. Declare your financial independence. Our next candid coffee can liberate you from the stale rules touted by mainstream financial media. Know the enemies of your wealth and fight them on your terms. We'll arm you with the information you need at our next candid coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. Saturday, July 24th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Financial Independence Candid Coffee with Ratliff. And Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Baby shot. Baby shot. Baby shot. Baby shot. Mommy shot. Mommy shot. Mommy shot. Daddy shot. Daddy shot. Daddy shot. And uh, welcome back to the show this morning. Michael Leibwitz joining me this morning. Um, very interesting. Yesterday, there was a guy out on uh, on some uh, one of the social media channels. I can't remember which one, but there's a video. And he's talking about the massive amount of wealth that these billionaires have, right? There's 496 billionaires in the world, right? So just a tremendous amount of money owned by the top 1% of the, of the population. And it was interesting, though. He, goes, he says, Bill Gates has $126 billion of net worth. That's a lot of money. He says there's only 7 billion people on the planet. If he gave everybody a billion dollars, he'd still have $119 billion left. <laughs> Math doesn't quite work. Yeah. <laughs> and so the comments are great because it pretty much is like, well, apparently you failed math. <laughs> I like this thinking now. <laughs> it was a great idea, right? If we just, you know, give everybody a billion bucks. There you go. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm great. Good. I'm excited about our discussion today. Yeah, exactly. So uh, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman uh, Jerome Powell spent the last couple of days up on Capitol Hill talking about, you know, monetary policy and that there's no real risk of inflation here and it's going to be transient. It's all going to be fine not to worry about it. In the meantime, you've got all those minions running around with their hair on fire saying we need to hike rates, we need to taper. <laughs> so, you know, the the level of dissent between the chairman and the rest of the board members is is getting quite vocal. And, um, you know, that's a little bit interesting in and of itself, right? Uh, it's chaos. 
right? Every day you hear, I've been kind of, if you follow me on Twitter, I've been kind of going off about their stance on the, the mortgage market, on the real estate market. John Williams from the New York Fed said that the Fed, what the Fed is doing is making housing more affordable and lowering prices. The same day, you have Powell and you have a couple other speakers saying that the price of real estate is surging. And, you know, some of the not Powell, but some of the other minions are should we taper mortgage purchases? Right. You know, so so it's just which we've kind of coined Fed gibberish, but it's just gibberish coming out of their mouths. But because they who they are, who they are, that's who people listen to. Right. right? That, that's what makes the headlines. But unfortunately, you can't just say whatever you want and it become reality because it's not. It's right. far from reality on what's going on in the world. And some Fed speakers get it and some don't. But it's it's very disturbing. And it's to be honest, I think it's causing some trepidation in the markets. Finally, mm. I, I think we're kind of at this turning point where you can't just have full on monetary stimulus where everyone knows it's got to somehow slow down, come to an end, not come to an end, but just we're kind of hit it. We've hit that apex and it's got to change. And the Fed is giving us no direction on how that might change, on what they might do. It's just different messages from different people. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the, the big kind of concerns here. So, you know, again, we kind of go back and we talk about how the Fed, you know, you know kind of I don't want to say manipulates the market. That's not really the, the term I want to use, but it's, it's fair enough. That's the right term. Uh, but, you know, they they tell you one thing, even though they may be thinking or doing another thing, but they have to in order to maintain the stability in the markets, which they need to maintain market stability. You can't have be having a crash because that destroys consumer confidence at that point. So they got to maintain this market stability and kind of hope everything works out right, you know, down the road. But eventually, they've got to start talking about extracting themselves from, you know, this whole situation. So they put out these mixed messages, almost trying to confuse the markets. Like markets going, well, I don't want to sell off here because they're still doing QE, but they might be tapering. So maybe, and so the markets just kind of hold pat. But again, we may be looking at, you know, something in Jackson Hole coming up here fairly shortly um, where they actually start talking about. Um, you know, a pathway to taper. And you've talked about a couple of times before that they'll probably start with mortgage-backed securities because of what's happening in the housing market. Right. And I think that could still come sooner. I, I know Powell doesn't think so, but I think they can easily <laughs> taper mortgages, buy more treasuries, so the amount of QE doesn't change, but what they're buying changes. Yeah. And it's, you know what the problem, I think that they're running into is the market's not waiting for them. Mm -hmm. The market is slowly starting to come around to the idea that they have to be ahead of it. And if you look at stocks, that's a hard thing for you to see, mm -hmm. right? People, you know, I, I think people listening, watching right now are saying, but Mike, stocks are basically at all time highs. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the bond market. Right. The bond market is loud and clear about what it sees. Yeah, and we're seeing, and we're seeing that just you know, and you know, you can talk about interest rates in particular. Um, talk about the ten-year rate at you know below back below one point four percent. You know, it's certainly not. There was an interesting chart out this morning saying that you know, based on where inflation is, interest rates should be dramatically higher. Well, interest rates aren't a reflection of inflation; they're a predictor of inflation. They they rates tend to predict where inflation should be or will be. And what rates are telling you is that economic growth and inflation aren't nearly as strong as, or uh, permanent at least, 
as a lot of people think. But the second thing, but the really the more important thing to watch is really the the yield curve, which is continuing to flatten. And that also tells you that there's a problem with a lot of the economic growth assumptions, et cetera, going forward. Right. I mean, what the yield curve is telling you is, is it thinks the Fed will taper. It thinks the Fed will eventually raise rates. At the same time, it thinks the economy has pretty much peaked and will slow down to some degree, whether that's rapidly or slowly, and that inflation is transitory, like Powell keeps telling us. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I said I agree, I agree with him. Right. I, I, it is transitory. And yesterday we dug into CPI or Tuesday, right. whenever that was, Tuesday, days are flying. Yeah. Uh, we dug into CPI, and if you really look at it, one third of the rise in CPI is used car prices. That's not sustainable at all. That's a function of no, you know, of, of new car production being very weak because they can't get chips. Mm -hmm. People have to buy cars. Used cars are cheaper. They're buying used cars. There aren't a lot of used cars on a lot. It's temporary. Used yeah. car prices can't stay where they're at because people just buy new cars once they can. So we're going to get a bunch of new cars, be it three months or nine months, whenever it may come. And people are going to trade in their cars to buy new cars, and you're going to have a bunch of used cars on the lot, and those prices are going to come right down. Right. So we're going to we're going to be talking in six months or nine months or a year, and say, "Wow, used cars are only three percent of CPI, but because of it, CPI was negative." Right. It, it's going to have such a big effect. You know, so CPI essentially on an annualized basis contributed about three percent to CPI. If CPI was only running 2% annualized and you had a change like that, you'd have minus 1%. That's correct. And, yeah. and there's other, there's other, a bunch of other contributors too, and they're all, many of them, not all of them, are things that are more flexible in pricing. Think of like the price of oil is flexible, the gas pump. It goes up and down, it oscillates. Sometimes it's two bucks a gallon, sometimes it's four bucks a gallon. But when it's four or five bucks a gallon, you know it's kind of more likely to be two bucks a gallon in the next year. Right. Right? There Unless are you other live in California, things, of course. Right. <laughs> it's consistently there are other four. things that, that, that are called sticky prices, and that means their prices really don't they, – they, they kind of just follow a trend. They don't oscillate, and when they go to a higher level, they tend to stay mm -hmm. at that higher level. And, and Housing look, in general tends to be like that. Yeah, and, and food costs, too. You see that as well. Right. You know, when food costs, you either get food costs that sticks at a higher price or you get shrinkflation, which is just get less for the same price. Uh, but you get it through one of those two manners, and, and it does. Uh, once, uh, you know, producers, uh, you know, get comfortable at that level and consumers are buying that level, they typically don't bring those prices back down again. So it's, right. it's and, so that's a good point. And the BLS puts out what they call sticky and flexible price. They basically take CPI and they break it down into what's sticky, what's flexible. Mm -hmm. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the flexible one was something like up 16% or could have been up 22% or 30%. It was a crazy number. But the fl the sticky one is not was 2 or 3%. So it tells you kind of what's going on is that there's a few sectors of the economy where recovery is really problematic because of shortages, because of excessive demand, because of all these other crazy things going on because of post-pandemic and a vaccine that are causing these wild distortions that will solve themselves. 
So when we come back from the break, you know, and this is kind of, you know, we'll set, I want to set this topic up and, you know, we'll come back and talk about it from the break. But, you know, part of this whole, um, you know, kind of push, there's, there's two problems potentially the Fed's going to run into with all of this is one is that they already own about 25% of the of the treasury bond market. So there is a limit to how many bonds that they can buy. I know a lot of people go, oh, well, you know, the Fed has unlimited QE. They really don't because if you absorb so much of the bond market that you start to affect its functioning, and they even said this about the junk bond market. They said the junk bond market is too small and we can't absorb a lot of junk bonds because we'll start to impact the, the functioning of the bond market. It's the same way with the treasury market. The treasury market is just a lot bigger, so there's more room for them to work, but there is a limit uh, before they start impacting the functioning of the treasury market. But, you know, we saw Janet Yellen coming out talking about that we, you know, she's really been behind the whole Biden agenda of, you know, social infrastructure and climate change, of, you know, fighting it through monetary policy. She's been very supportive of, of that. Jerome Powell has now even gotten under that bandwagon saying, well, the Fed has some mandates here, you know, price stability and full employment. Um, then they've added the third mandate of, you know, making sure the asset market stays in a bubble. Now they've picked on two more. So now they have five mandates, which is now climate change and wealth inequality. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting comment that they're now starting to get into areas that have absolutely nothing to do with monetary policy. Um, as they continue to kind of expand their overreach into the political regime and functioning of the economy as well. So we'll talk about that when we come back with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. You get our live stream there as well. So you can watch the show live and everything we're talking about and also get all of our replays. If you happen to miss part of the show, want to come back and catch it later, you can do it at your own leisure. Catch our podcast and our video cast at our YouTube channel on realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Declare your financial independence. Our next Candid Coffee can liberate you from the stale rules touted by mainstream financial media. Know the enemies of your wealth and fight them on your terms. We'll arm you with the information you need at our next Candid Coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. Saturday, July 24th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Financial Independence Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Michael Leibowitz joining me as well. Um, talking a little bit about uh, the Federal Reserve, Treasury, really, it's it's kind of a all hands on deck. If you've really kind of been paying attention uh, to what's happening politically, economically, monetary policy-wise, it's not just a domestic issue. It's a global issue. And it really comes from all corners of, of, of really 
um, the upper echelon of society, right? So, for instance, if you take a look at uh, BlackRock, Larry Fink is a good example of this. Um, no matter where he goes in his building, people talk about the, the, the rumors coming out of BlackRock. They manage about $9 trillion dollars is that wherever he goes, he's, he's touting ESG, right? Environmentally, social, governments-type investing. It's all ESG. And we wrote an article recently about you know the complete scam that is ESG. It's, it's simply the same the same stocks that are in the S&P 500. They just charge you three times as much, you know, for you to have ESG tagged onto your ETF, right? So, you know, it's there's nothing really to it, but it's this interesting mantra. It's this message that we have got to fix the climate, right? And it's not just climate, but it's also this whole wealth inequality gap, which I find laughable considering that the Federal Reserve is solely responsible (laughs) for the wealth gap. Anyway, I wanted to get Mike to weigh in a little bit this morning because this is something that the Federal Reserve has taken up as a mantle of their policymaking agenda, which is now to not only fix the economy through monetary policy, but also to fix climate change and to fix you know, economic inequality. Well, Mike, how are you going to how, how is the Fed going to going to do that? So uh, I think what's important is to kind of define the Fed's role as specified by Congress through the Federal Reserve Act. They have two objectives, price stability and full employment. Price stability, you know, we can think about that at many ways. Let, let's just kind of start with what they do first, what they should be doing first. Mm-hmm. Right. According to Congress. Price stability to me means that if I go and buy a Coke today for a dollar, I can go buy a Coke in two years for about a dollar and in five years for about a dollar. That's price stability for Coke to be a dollar today, two years and five years from now. That's zero percent inflation. If if you have two percent inflation, which the Fed thinks is its mandate, the price of Coke rises from a dollar to a dollar four cents to a dollar ten cents in five years. That's not price stability. Mm hmm. So that that's mandate number one. Mandate number two is full employment. And it is what it is. They, their goal is to get employment so that unemployment is as low as possible. That's what they are. That's what the, the Congress has tasked them with. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a third one that's cropped up over the last 20 years. It's called financial stability. And this probably started they started thinking about thinking about it in 1987, <laughs> but it really, when long-term capital ran into its problems in 1997, 98, I forgot which year, that's when the Fed really started becoming aggressive because they were scared that long-term capital would be a burden on the big banks and brokers on Wall Street and create problems for the markets. And, and just about real quick, let me just stop you right there just to put this into context. Long-term capital was a $100 billion problem. You know, now we're talking about problems with banks going under in the trillions of dollars. So, I mean, right. what they were worried about a $100 billion problem in 1998. Now they're talking about trillion-dollar problems in 2020. Right. And do it as a percentage of GDP, and it's much higher, too. Yeah. It's not just – I mean, there has been some inflation and growth. So, so they've taken on financial stability, and that's kind of – it's not – congressional mandated, but I think it's accepted by everyone, by Mm -hmm. Congress. It's kind of like when the courts pass a law, it may not, when the courts, you know, affirm something, it may not quite be law, but when the courts affirm it, it becomes law to some degree, right? Right. Now we have these two brand new ones, 
wealth equality and uh, climate change. So why don't we tackle climate change first? And Lance, you just appointed me head of the <laughs> head of the Fed. And Congress told me that one of my mandates now is to re reduce the effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. What can I do? Right. I'm right. the chair of the Fed. I can actually do something. Right. I can affect the economy with interest rates. So there's a couple angles. One is, you know, if climate change is coming from pollution, one simple thing is to try to slow down the economy. Mm -hmm. Right. If we're buying less, it means we're shipping less. It means there are less planes and trains and boats polluting the airways. It means the factories aren't running, running on full blast. It, it, it would, you know, like we saw, you know, there was less pollution output during the first few months of covid than we've seen in a long time. Right. So I could raise interest rates and slow down the economy. Yeah, I'd probably be fired in three days. But <laughs> it, but and now here's the other thing. OK, I could say that's not a great idea. People need jobs. Everyone wants to work. We want a full economy. But can you fix climate change? I'm like, yes, I can also do that. I can try to create an, a society where innovation trumps speculation. Right. I want people with capital to invest in productive assets. Mm -hmm. So invest in factory technologies that that reduce pollution, invest in new forms of transportation that do not pollute like gas or even solar in mm -hmm. a different way, you know, hydrogen technology, try to figure out nuclear technology so it's 100 percent safe, cancer research. There's all kinds of things we can do to affect climate change. But to do that, I would have to raise rates. Right. The problem with very low rates is what what essentially happens is that investors become traders mm -hmm. they become speculators rates are so low that they prefer the markets where you get a steady stream of income or what appears to be a steady stream of income from markets rising with full liquidity that's what in my article and I, let me lance i actually want to read something i'm going to look down at my phone here so i apologize but but wixel was an incredible economist you know, he uh, he passed away a while ago, but he uh, he has a model where he talks about the natural rate of interest rates and the causes and effects of when they're too high or too low. And let me read what he said here. But when short term market rates are below the natural rate, intelligent investors respond appropriately. They borrow heavily at the low rate and buy existing assets with somewhat predictable returns and shorter time horizons. Financial assets skyrocket in value, while long-term cash flow-driven investments with riskier prospects, prospects languish. Basically, what he's saying is that money flows to markets. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, this, and, and the Fed has known this, right? I mean, the whole reason the Fed lowered interest rates to zero was to create, create that environment to where stability. assets would, would – yeah. And, and, they right. would, and, and, ask, and they would chase assets, you know, financial right. assets, right. rather than real assets. So, so if I'm in charge of the Fed, I raise rates back to the natural rate, and we can debate what that rate is all day. But when you do that, you take the speculation out of the markets, and it may not be pretty because stock markets will fall. And that money starts going to more innovative things, like all the things that mm -hmm. could help 
with climate change. Well, and look, right? and, and we saw this back in September of 2018, to be specific. Uh, in September of 2018, the Federal Reserve was hiking interest rates, and, and Jerome Powell said, hey, we're nowhere near the neutral rate or the natural rate, and we need to hike rates more. And immediately after that, the market declined 20%, and the Fed said, oh, never mind, we were just kidding. <laughs> right? right. We got to get rates down again because we can't have the market decline. That's the problem that the Fed is in is that they, they talk a great game. But to your point, they're not going to hike rates at this point because they can't afford the market revulsion that they're going to get from that. Because, again, their other side of this coin is to create financial stability. Right. I mean, they're kind of like Al Gore. Right. Right. With climate change. <laughs> Al Gore talked a great game about climate change. Right. And he lives in a 30,000 square foot house and he's flying private jets. He's polluting more. You know, he's doing more pollution than than, than little towns. Right. Right. And, and that's what the Fed's doing. They're talking a game. We care about climate change. What they're actually doing is making the problem worse. And right. The, and they're creating consumption. They're not creating answers to the problems. Right. They could be actually doing things if they wanted to, but they wouldn't be friendly to the markets or to whoever wants to get reelected. Well, and this is also the same problem, though. And by doing these other things, they're also the prime culprit behind the wealth inequality gap. We've had this massive surge in wealth in the top 1% versus the bottom 90%. And there's a direct correlation. We've shown this, you know, in previously in charts and articles that we put out. There's a direct correlation between the growth of the of the top one percent of income earners to the Fed balance sheet. So the right. more that they do, the wealthier they get because those are the ones that have assets to invest in these, you know, assets with shorter durations relative to, you know, the interest rate policy currently at hand. Right, and we're running out of time in this segment. But I would like to, when we come back, I think that's a great topic for discussion because there are things Fed the Fed can also do for the wealth inequality problem yeah. that they're not doing. Yeah. And raise interest and, and rates. That's, <laughs> right. And that it's a big problem, too. And let's talk about that. Yeah, we will. So, yeah, when we come back from the break, we'll touch on that. We'll also uh, grab a couple of your questions and comments here as well before we get to the top of the hour. Uh, don't go away. Be right back here on The Real Investment Show. I'm Lance Roberts, your host. Be right back. Screw that whole thing up. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Declare your financial independence. Our next candid coffee can liberate you from the stale rules touted by mainstream financial media. Know the enemies of your wealth and fight them on your terms. We'll arm you with the information you need at our next candid coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff. Saturday, July 24th. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. 
investmentadvice.com. The Financial Independence Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Come and shake your body, baby, to the conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. Come and shake your body, baby, to the conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. This morning, I'm Rose Lance Roberts, Michael Leibowitz joining this morning as well. We're talking a little bit about the Federal Reserve this morning, their impact on, well, I shouldn't say their impact, but, you know, their, their new mantles of now fighting climate change and wealth inequality through monetary policy. Um, and it's interesting because really, no matter kind of where you look at it, they're the ones responsible for these issues because of keeping interest rates so low for so long that they've created a massive you know, increase in speculation in the markets, which have led to, you know, you know, have, have, have really kind of supported climate change at this point in terms of, you know, uh, creating environments where people are taking on excess risk. And also the, the, total in, the total issue of wealth inequality, more importantly than anything else. And that's where we kind of left off on the break is talking about wealth inequality and what the Fed can do to, con- if they truly wanted to combat wealth inequality, there's really kind of a simple measure to do it, right, Mike? Right. Do the opposite of what they're doing, <laughs> right? They're talking a mean game. Uh, bottom line is you, you kind of look at two families. A family makes 30000 a year. Every dime they spend is on, they're going to spend every dime they have. Inflation hits them directly. Yesterday, inflation printed at a 9% or so, or Tuesday at a 9% adjusted rate. They get a 3% raise for the year. They're losing 6% a year. Mm-hmm. It's killing them. You got another family making $3 million a year. Inflation affects them, and they spend more than the family making 30000 but it's a small percentage, a smaller percentage of their wealth. Mm-hmm. They can invest the other $2.5 million in the markets that are rising because of very low rates and take advantage of it and offset more than offset inflation. So what the Fed does with these abnormally low rates, and I'm not saying rates shouldn't be low, but they shouldn't be negative. Real rates are real rates, which means after inflation are negative, Mm -hmm. which means anyone that buys a bond is is guaranteed to lose money, lose purchasing power. Mm -hmm. Right. So if the Fed were serious about climate change, if the Fed were serious about inequality, they would. And actually, if they were serious about financial stability, they would raise rates. Now, the markets would not be happy, but in the long run, the financial system would be much more stable if you didn't have all this leverage based on speculation in the markets. So if you want to know what the Fed should do to fix fix all their new mandates, Mm -hmm. it's raise rates. What are they doing? They're keeping rates low. Markets, you know, it's becoming a huge problem Mm -hmm. and they're fighting everyone to keep rates as low as they can to keep buying as many assets as they can. And then at the same time, they care about wealth inequality and they care (laughs) about climate and they care about all these things that they're doing the exact opposite. And it goes back to kind of where we started with the whole real estate thing. Mm -hmm. It's just gibberish coming out of the Fed. Right. And no one recognizes it because it's Powell and he's the official head of the Fed. And, you know, he must he's know what he's doing right? by the president. Yeah, he must know What's what that? he's doing. Right. I mean, he is. Right. I mean, he's chairman of the Fed. They, they only hire smart people for that. Right. He's a Ph.D. economics. Right. right. Oh, no, he's not. I forgot. Right. <laughs> exactly. He's not an ESG expert. He's not a climatologist. He's not. He didn't study wealth and society. He's a private equity 
portfolio manager. Mm -hmm. That's what he was. And that's and that's why he supports. I mean, look, and when this all comes down to it, let's not let's not you know fool anybody here. Wall Street and the banks, which are the members of the Fed, and this is what people forget, is that the major banks, J.P. Morgan, and Bank of America, and all all these major banks, Citigroup, they are they are members of the Federal Reserve, and they receive an annual dividend from the Federal Reserve from all the income that's generated off their balance sheet. So they Not get members. So, so, they're so, owners. They're they're correct. Uh, that is correct term. Uh, they are owners, and they get a dividend from all this all this balance sheet stuff that's going on. This is why banks are hugely profitable. A big chunk of their revenue comes from the Fed balance sheet, and and there's uh, you could say there's something wrong with it. You could say there's nothing wrong with that. It just depends on how you want to view it. But the point is, is that there is a there's very much a conflict of interest between the Federal Reserve and their stance on, you know, maintaining monetary policy and what happens on Wall Street. And right. and this is why, look, this is why we keep bailing out the banks and the Fed does these stress tests, which are a complete joke, um, because every time the, we get into trouble, we've got to bail out the banks. Right. So, right. you know, they're not well capitalized. They are not well funded. And because if they were, we wouldn't have to keep bailing them out every time we turn around. But this is just part and parcel of the problem that's going on. And, but the average person doesn't know this. I mean, it's just, right. you know, we know about it and people invest in the markets know who the Fed is. But I bet you if you walk down the street and ask 10 people just at random who the chairman of the uh, Federal Reserve was, they probably couldn't tell you. No, nor. And if they heard him and saw him and read an article on him in the paper, mm -hmm. they'd say, yeah, what a smart guy. I'm glad he's running our <laughs> our Federal Reserve. I don't know what the Federal Reserve does or what their mandate is, but I'm glad that he's behind it because he looks official. <laughs> right? It's and, very and, much the case. And we're, look, we're, we're people with our views are outcasts. Yeah. Right? Right? We're, we're thrown to the side. We're conspiracy theorists. We're, you know, it's just a very simple, it, they, they, the Federal Reserve complicates everything so much by talking, using big words, econometrics. It's really not that difficult, it, right? It's really supply and demand. And that was like economics 101. And if you really just think about things and not try to not try to make it so complicated with big formulas, you can at least begin to understand what the Fed does and and the effect it has and the consequences and the more they do the worse things get and i'm talking about wealth equality mm -hmm. it, it wealth inequality is diverging has diverged even more during a crisis well why is that because the fed was more active and well then the government should pay out more and fist you know people say well the government now is giving them more money mm -hmm. like that's great but who's funding that the federal reserve is funding that and further further creating bigger problems it, it's it's not that the federal reserve is not an easy answer to fix all our problems and they're actually making it worse and, right you know. well look and, and and look we just wrote an article recently you know we're, do, we're talking about sending today right people are now going to get an additional thirty six hundred dollars coming in a month for additional child care tax credits you know these type of things that's fine Nothing wrong with that, but it has a negative multiplier effect on the economy. In other words, it doesn't impact economic growth because you're only recycling tax dollars and then adding debt on top of it. So No, it does impact economic growth. It's going to lower it. Slows, yeah, it definitely slows it down. But but again, you know, this is it sounds great. And of course, the people that are receiving, 
you know, the money. They're happy about it, right? Because I'm getting more. There's an interesting poll out just recently. They took a poll and they said, would you be supportive of another round of checks from government? Surprisingly, 60% of people said, yeah. (laughs) So, sure, give me free money. What they don't realize is they're only getting their own money back. I mean, they pay taxes in terms of payroll taxes and sales tax and home taxes, all these other things you pay taxes on. And the government's very graciously just giving you some of it back. So, you know, you're not getting free money. You You pay for this. And you either pay through it through slower economic growth, lower wage growth, or you pay for it through your taxes. But or inflation, or inflation, one of the one of those four things. But again, and, this is this is the problem, and we're not we're not. And the, and the issue is is we're not really solving any problems. We're just prolonging the inevitable. Right, and the burden to pay for it is not taxes. Yeah, right. That that ship sailed a long time ago. It's the Federal Reserve, and you know if they redid the tax structure to to you know, heavily tax some people and not tax others, you could say then that they are redistributing wealth, but that's not what's going on. That's right. They're actually the poor people, the the lower income classes that are getting some of these new benefits are paying for them plus. Right? This isn't the wealthy paying for it. They're 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 continuing to help distribute wealth in ways that create wealth inequality. So a couple of real quick questions here before we get to the end of the show, just um one is that, that inflation is transitory, as Powell, uh, as Powell discusses. And then, of course, you know, if inflation starts to drop, that means you're going to get a, a peak in earnings growth, which is, is a true fact. Then, you know, we're currently trading at three times over three times price to sales. You know, this is going to become problematic uh, down the road. Valuations are a great predictor of long term returns. And no matter how you look at this, market cap to GDP at two and a half times economic growth. Uh, price to sales at over three times uh, what you're actually generating in sales. You know, outcomes for this eventually, regardless of monetary policy, isn't going to be good for investors. Right. No, no, it's not. But in the meantime, let's party on because the Fed's got our back. <laughs> party on, Garth. Party on, Wayne. <laughs> so, um, so, we got you know, our theme for next week, by the exactly, way. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That, that that will be our new one. So, pal has... Lance's been- world, Lance's world. <laughs> Don't help me out over here, okay? Um, so, you know, so, so one of the other questions here, of course, is really just talking about cryptocurrency. You know, actually, a couple of comments about cryptocurrency. You know, you know the problem is you can't flip a crypto coin. Uh, there is no heads or tails. Um, the question is, though, is that you know, crypto has now gotten very correlated to the stock market. It's it's a a really more of a measure of speculation than it is a hedge against. You know, it was originally said, oh, this is going to be a hedge against inflation. Problem is, it really hasn't turned out that way. It's become more of a of a tracker of investment risk and speculation risk in markets. Your thoughts? Right. It's inter- Right. It's interesting. The price of Bitcoin has almost been cut in half, and we've had the largest inflation over the last few months that we've had in you know a long time. So uh, you know, Bitcoin is speculation. Yeah. So basically, what you're saying is that inflation deflated Bitcoin. Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> Just the opposite. That wasn't supposed to happen, so they said. Right. Uh, anyway. All right, Mike, thanks so much for today. Appreciate you joining us. Uh, be sure and stick around. Our three minutes on markets and money is coming up. We'll go through the major markets today, kind of see where we are in our signals and potentially what uh, to expect here over the next couple of weeks. Uh, again, we're kind of in the first big week of earnings. The next two weeks, uh, big, big earnings reports coming out that's really going to be driving the markets. But again, kind of paying attention to what money's, uh, money's doing. We'll talk about that 
that in our three minutes on markets and money coming up here in just a few minutes. So stay tuned to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. While you're there, send us your questions, comments, emails, subscribe to our YouTube channel if you're not already. Love to have you there and love to have you join us every day. Ask questions on our, on our chat channel as well. It's all there for you, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.